www.kcbb.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of Truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are listening to us here at 88.7 for the first time, for the next hour we will be taking people's questions. Maybe you've been studying a text of Scripture and you're sure, unsure as to its interpretation or its application, or there's a challenge in your personal life or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is let us know what the need is. And there's several ways that you can do that. Again, you can call the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that number is 843-525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And when you call, we do give preference to live callers, so if you want to be sure your question is answered, call us, and we will. Uh, you don't have to stay on the line. Um, you can dictate it, or you can go on the air live, however you'd like to give it. So let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning. All right, very good. Um, Pastor Abdel from Kentucky writes, Hi, Pastor Brogy. I recently refused or actually avoided in a nice way to help two homosexuals to move in together, just like I would with two heterosexuals that are not married. I've asked around people from my church uh, that would agree with me and Christian people from work that would disagree with me on my decision and would tell me that's a way to build a relationship with them and tell them about Christ. This homosexual person is a coworker, and he was moving into a new home with his partner. A part of me felt bad because I had told him I was going to help him before knowing he was homosexual, but I didn't want to participate in promoting for two people to continue to live in sin. I am convinced I did the right thing, but I'd like to hear from you. Also, how can we as Christians help a homosexual to change his lifestyle and accept Jesus Christ as Savior? I have some ideas, but I'd love to hear some of yours. Wow. Um, this this caller from Kentucky, this is a fantastic question. So let me see if I can respond. You are wise and right that you don't want to do anything that would promote sin, and yet at the same time, as some of your friends are echoing, you want to uh, do everything that you can to reach them for Christ. Now, in their mind, helping them to move in would build a relationship to reach them for Christ, and I don't think so. I think that would actually accomplish just the opposite. You can take anything, and you, if you exaggerate it enough, you can step back and maybe see their wisdom as it relates to your situation. Suppose you had couple of people, and uh, they uh, wanted your help to come help build a new bar room uh, so that people could come for happy hours and get high and buzzed. And, well, in the name of trying to reach them with the gospel, would you like to uh, go and help them? I hope you wouldn't. 
I know we live in a day of gross compromise where we have now a lot of evangelical leaders who uh, take a very loose view on alcohol. We've had Christian seminaries and colleges. I mean, it's beyond belief, uh, you know, to see Moody Bible Institute, to see Dallas Theological Seminary. Joe Stoll came out a few years ago where he's the president of a Christian college, used to be a a pastor up there at uh, Moody. And, uh, you know, and well, we had a three-year study and we were enlightened and now it's okay to drink. I mean, just some incredibly bad things. If Planned Parenthood wanted you to uh, come and do carpentry work so that their clinic looked really nice on the inside, would you want to do it? I hope not. You wouldn't want to go into a room that's going to murder little babies and make it as pleasant as possible. So there's a line somewhere that you draw. And you see, the problem with helping two heterosexuals who are not married to move in or two homosexuals, and there's really no difference. They're both in sin, just a different expression is really to endorse that and to say, well, there's really nothing all that wrong about it. And there's great wrong. And so you see, when we lower God's standard and we uh, don't stand for what's right and true, then, uh, you know, we end up doing a disarm. Why? Because one of the functions of the law, the standards of God, is to show us that we are great sinners and we have a need for a Savior. So you have these people today who are very soft on homosexuality, and in doing so, they're not doing people a a service, they're doing them a gross disservice. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Feminine, are they passive partners in a homosexual relationship? Um... Even in lesbians, you typically have a husband-wife, so to speak. Um, and so uh, God says, don't be deceived, that people who live like this, who practice such things, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But anyone can be saved, because then he goes on to say, but such were some of you. But you were justified, sanctified. And so God can save anyone in any kind of a situation. But before a person can get saved, they have to get lost. So you told them, though, you were going to help them. And so you want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. And so, you know, sometimes uh, we we need to, you know, get into the weeds a little bit and probe and find out, well, who am I helping and what's the purpose? And so that you don't put yourself unnecessarily in an awkward position. But then to tell them you're going to help them and not to, uh, I don't think it would still be right to go back and say, well, I'm going to help you now. I I think, though, hey, look, I I didn't realize that you guys were in a homosexual relationship, and I told you I'd help you, but I didn't understand the context. And by the way, I would do the same with two heterosexuals who wanted to live together and weren't married. Um, So um, you tell them, and if that gets them mad, well, okay, it gets them mad. There's nothing you can do about that. So these are the challenges that we face, and sadly, while laws, according to First Timothy one, are to be written, Second Timothy one, to be written against homosexual behavior, they're being written in favor of homosexual behavior, and so there's more and more coming down the pike for us as Christians that if you're not careful with what you say or how you say it, or you know, there's all kinds of. Uh, well, consequences that come. I say, I meant to say First Timothy 1. It says, we know that the law is good if it's, one uses it lawfully. And then he says, realize the fact that law, and now he moves from the law to 
uh, law in general, the law principle, uh, you could say man's law, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In other words, he's saying traditionally men write laws against homosexual behavior just as they would against kidnappers and perjurers and murderers. God categorizes all these things together. God God sees it as evil. And so we have to, one, be firm in our view that this is sin, and a person who lives in this lifestyle, be they married as heterose- um, unmarried as heterosexuals or or living together as homosexuals, such people show all the marks that they are lost. Such people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so you have to hold God's law up, and you have to hold it up high. Otherwise, you do, you do people a great disservice. Now, with that said, one of the things you want to ask and answer for yourself, if you have, say, homosexuals in your family, how, how do you interface with them? Uh, you don't want to shut them out. If you shut them out, you lose all opportunity. I, I think of someone who came to me some time back, and they said our daughter is married to uh, a lesbian, and they want to come for Christmas. And what do you think? Uh, they want to stay in our house. And and all I would say to them in return to these parents is I'd say, look, yeah, invite them to your table to eat. Uh, you want to build a relationship, but don't let them sleep in your house. And you have to explain it to them. And sometimes you can find some common ground. In fact, I asked this couple, I said, is, is there anything morally that they're really opposed to, uh, either or both of them? Like, for instance, is either of them opposed to abortion? Well, it turns out, yeah, they're opposed to abortion. Okay, that's some common ground. So if uh, they're opposed to killing babies in the womb and you ask me to help participate in that, can you see how that would be offensive to my conscience? And they might say, well, yeah, yeah, I I could see that. Well, it's just as offensive for me in light of my conscience that's calibrated through the Bible to let you sleep in our house. But we love you and care about you and want you to come to our dinner table. But for us to endorse your behavior by letting you sleep together, in this case, helping them move in so that they can do what God calls unnatural and abomination, that would be a huge mistake. So you actually acted wise. Um, maybe what would help you in terms of winning homosexual people to Christ. Remember, the gospel is the dunamis. It's, we get our English word dynamite from it. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So don't ever think, well, you know, they're gay. They'll never become a Christian. Or he's a drunkard or she's a prostitute. Don't ever think that way because God can save anyone in any state and from any kind of lifestyle. So, again, you want to be firm, like, what does the Scripture say? And I have a sermon I just preached uh, a few weeks ago on uh, moral perversion, confronting moral perversion. And I think that message might be really helpful to you. One, you want to be very clear as to what Scripture says, because there are many um, known even churches that take the Scriptures and say, well, God didn't really mean that. And so, for instance, I'll give you one example, and I could I could harp on numerous examples, but one example of a text taken out of Scripture, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the the, the creature rather than the creator who's a blessed. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So how do you argue a passage like that away? Here's how they do it. Uh, the chaplain at Princeton uh, University said, well, what God is really saying here is that if he created you as a homosexual, and this is their argument, I was born this way. You're not born this way. No one is born homosexual. Uh, that's a distortion of what God has revealed in Scripture. Well, but if you were born this way, he reasoned, and then you lived out the lifestyle of a heterosexual, you'd be changing what is natural for you for what is unnatural. Or vice versa, if God created you heterosexual, as they argue, and then you went into a homosexual lifestyle, then you would be doing what is unnatural for you. But if God created you homosexual to live or marry another homosexual, that that would be totally fitting. See, they take the scriptures and they twist them, Peter says, to their own destruction. So you want to be very clear, like, um, what does the scripture say so that if you're given that opportunity— uh, you can potentially share the gospel with them. And sometimes you're planting a seed and down the road. takes time for a seed to germinate. All of a sudden, this unhappy homosexual person who's so disillusioned with life uh, wants to find some real life, some real meaning, and the seed that you planted brings them into the kingdom of God. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we just had a live caller that dictated their question. They'd like to know, what newspapers, magazines, or articles do you read to stay up to date? Well, I, I like the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's it's uh, on the cover page. I, I guess my dad got me hooked on the Wall Street Journal when I was a, a boy because it came to our home five days a week. And on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, they had a column where it summarized all the major news stories uh, in the nation. And uh, then it was indexed to the particular page. My dad got it primarily for uh, the stock market because that back then you didn't have the Internet and those other things. But uh, you can get the Wall Street Journal online electronically. It's a great news source. It's a... Uh, relatively conservative in their obituary, obituary uh, uh, their op-ed page. Uh, so you can get some uh, good information, not totally, but uh, still it's fairly objective and it's a good news summary. I do, I do uh, have on my phone the Fox app and the CNN app. Uh, I like to hear both sides and what the liberals are saying. I have a son who's like super conservative and he gets the New York Times electronically because he wants to know what the liberals are arguing uh, to be able to defend, you know, the conservative point of view from a Christian worldview. So those are some uh, interesting uh, resources I think that you might find helpful. As a pastor, you're called to preach between two worlds. You're called to preach the world that Christ lived in, but you have to take the Scripture and while there's only one interpretation of Scripture for every text of, uh, of the Word, uh, you have to apply it to the age that you're living in. And so it's helpful to be informed as to what is taking place. And, of course, we live in a free country, though our freedoms are 
eroding ever so fast, especially with this new administration. And if we're not on point as to what is actually happening and we're just silent, uh, it will become more oppressive and more difficult to to share the gospel. Uh, It may come to that. That won't hopefully uh, alter anyone's obedience, but you need to be informed. And since we live in a republic, we have an opportunity to uh, have our voice heard. We're having a meeting with the governor uh, here at Community Bible Church, pastors only by invitation only. So if you're listening and you'd like your pastor to come, no women pastors, just male pastors. There's no such thing as a woman pastor, so I'm not inviting them. And it's going to be a magnificent launch uh, it will be catered. It will be quite nice. Uh, we have room for 100. And so if you have a pastor who would like to come, uh, call the church. And assuming he's, you know, Bible-believing, w- what's the purpose of this meeting? It's not political. It, it's to intersect the moral issues that are coming down the pike uh, with the spiritual issues that we are living with. And there's a lot that's coming up in the next legislation uh here in South Carolina that we we need to be informed of. And um, you you don't want to uh, have your head in the sand. And so I've written a letter to pastors. It's going to go out next week. And uh, again, it's an invitation only, but uh, I may not know your pastor, that he's a good man. And, uh, but for instance, I wrote in the letter, many critical issues will be confronting us in the next South Carolina legislative session, including medical marijuana, possibly recreational marijuana, legality on counseling people out of the homosexual and transgender lifestyles. You know, they made that against the law in Colombia. And um, there are people who want to make that against the law in Beaufort County and across the whole state. Child trafficking and really a radical new agenda that has infiltrated our government school system. So we can put our heads in the sand and be blind to what's happening, or we can... um, intersect, and I don't care if a governor's Democrat or Republican or independent, what my job is as a pastor is to speak up on the political issues that enter into the moral realm, because there we have a voice that needs to be heard. And so uh, this this dinner is coming up, this luncheon is coming up in November. So if you're listening, call Community Bible Church, and we'll do what we can to help. Let's go to Anthony, who's waiting patiently. Indeed he is. Thanks for holding, Anthony. You are on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Um, Anthony. My wife told me to call and ask you a question, Pastor. Okay. So she said Sunday you were speaking in reference to a mention about the Ethiopian eunuch. Yes. And she wanted to know two questions about the eunuch. says, uh, what is the job of a, a eunuch, and how do, uh, how did they know back then uh, who a eunuch was? Was he marked wearing jewelry, or was he marked with earrings, or whatever? And but she want to know what was their job, and how did you know that he was a eunuch? No, that's a great question. So, um, just to define some terms here with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, you know, who who was he? Of course, he was in Jerusalem worshiping. He was reading the prophet Isaiah on the way back. And in the providences of God, uh, the Lord captured Philip up in the north in Samaria and says, go to the road south towards Gaza. And in God's perfect timing, their paths intersect. Uh, and it was timing was everything. Um, he had, in fact, the timing was so close, he literally had to, to run up. Well, who would typically lead an entourage? The person who would lead an entourage 
was indeed typically a eunuch. So a eunuch, of course, had an altered uh, body. And we know that this eunuch certainly was not a Gentile because the book of Acts, the 10th chapter, gives us the record of the first Gentiles who come to believe in, in Jesus as Lord. So who was he? It's possible that he was a descendant through Solomon's line. Solomon had a lot of wives. Um, Some of them were purely political, but he had a lot of children through a lot of different women. And so there was a section in North Africa uh, where just some years ago, I guess it's been maybe 15 years ago, there was a huge exodus. The Ethiopian government gave the Israeli government like eight hours to remove any uh, Jewish black people. There were people who are black who uh, are Jewish. And so they did really the greatest airlift in human history up until that time. And in a matter of hours, they I think it was 13,000 uh, black Jewish people who were brought. So it's possible that he was from that line. Uh, it's possible that uh, if he was um, castrated only, that he was circumcised, and therefore he was a proselyte, that is a Gentile converted to Judaism, so not really considered a Gentile, or it's possible he was what we call a God-fearer if he was both emasculated and castrated. In either case, um, the instructions that God gave to Philip are, are very, very clear, um, and we're told here, so um, an angel of the Lord said, go south, he doesn't give him the reason why, So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. So eunuchs, uh, one, were over often harems for obvious reasons, but they were also, if they were well-skilled and gifted people, they were entrusted with much authority and responsibility, and secular history records that. And so typically the person who would lead an entourage for the queen or the king would be a eunuch. And, of course, um, that's obvious to Philip. He immediately knows who this person is. Uh, Whether God said he's a eunuch, we don't know. The text doesn't say that. He just says, go up and join this chariot. But Luke identifies for us that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. Did Philip initially know he was a eunuch when he went to the chariot? Probably. Or simply, it was eunuchs historically that led these entourages. Uh, But even if he didn't know, he soon found out through the dialogue with this man. And, of course, he's reading Isaiah the prophet, probably got the scroll of Isaiah because uh, based on the law, because symbolically God wanted to uh, represent his purity, and a eunuch couldn't do that with his altered body. And so there were certain restrictions based on what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy in terms of how they could worship. However, all those restrictions will be lifted for um, in the coming millennial reign. And so the prophet of Isaiah gives all these future promises for eunuchs and how God is going to bless them and how they're going to be engaged in the future coming millennial temple of the Messiah. So in either case, we know he is a eunuch. Philip probably could assess that from his leadership position. In either case, he found out that he was, and Luke records for us who this gentleman was. So great, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Diane M. from Marietta, Georgia, would like you to recommend some Christian books for 14-year-old athletes and gamers. 
she says, these are my twin grandsons. They both uh, were saved and baptized a few years ago in Marietta, Georgia. All right. So um, the fact that they're athletes or gamers uh, doesn't concern me so much. What does concern me would be their, their age and what could I do to help a 14-year-old teenager to grow in his relationship with Christ? And really, the needs are pretty much the same. Parents often ask me, hey, I'm looking for like a curriculum or something. And I recommend to them the discovery class. Uh, it's uh, at searchthescriptures.org under the umbrella of basic discipleship. And so we're redoing all the handouts and the messages, and we have five up there already. It's a 45-week discipleship course. So, for instance, uh, on Sunday mornings at Community Bible Church, they're getting ready to start the next handout on prayer. It's 31 pages long. Your grandsons are going to learn what the Scripture says about prayer. So why do I say the discovery class? Because very often people come into the kingdom of God and they're really not grounded. They're not grounded from the pulpit because more and more expository preaching has fallen by the wayside. People think, well, you know, we need to entertain people. No, we we don't need to entertain people. Uh, When we entertain people, we're entertaining the goats. We're really not feeding the sheep. The sheep need to be fed. And so some of the church paradigms that have been adopted in terms of how we do worship are extremely faulty. And so, you know, someone came to the church, uh, and last Saturday I was calling visitors, and she said, well, um, do you have like a uh, I went to the service at 9.15. Is the 11 o'clock service different? Do you have a contemporary service? I said, well, let me just first say um, this whole um, dichotomy between a, a traditional service and a contemporary service is just stupid. It's unbiblical when you see churches and they say traditional service, you know, 9.15, contemporary service, 11 o'clock. That just shows how faulty that local assembly's thinking is as to how worship should be done. And they think, well, if we have this service, you know, where the pastor takes off his tie and, you know, we we darken the auditorium and maybe even have some smoke and, uh, you know, some steam coming up off the stage, that this is going to attract, you know, the younger audience. No, that that's... Uh, That's a wrong view of Scripture, what God uses to bring people into the kingdom. He uses a man of God filled with the Spirit of God preaching the Word of God. That's what will change lives. And it has very little to do with the music. I said to her, my only concern as a pastor with the music is that it's biblically grounded. Look, you can go to a church that sings nothing but 17th century hymns. Not that that is right, because the Bible says you should sing a new song unto the Lord. Um, but it could be rich, it can be alive, and there can be hundreds and hundreds of people there and folks finding Christ. It has nothing to do that, oh, we've got this rock band up there. You know, and when you look at so many of these churches now that have these, I don't know how else to describe them, but really it's like a Christian rock band. And they think, well, that's what's going to reach people. And they produce huge crowds. You've got what Bill Hybels in... Rick Warren created for the body of Christ that has been absolutely disastrous. And so we have all these people who are no different from the world, um, and yet they call themselves born-again evangelical Christians. And a lot of people who have a false assurance of salvation, and they've been sold a bill of goods. So it's important, A, to get your 
children, your grandchildren, if you can, and I know you're the grandmother, so uh, you may not, it may not be your place, uh, depending on the kind of relationship that you have with a son or a daughter or a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law, whatever the circumstances might be, but obviously for them to be in a good church, but even if it's a church that has a gospel, it may be that the basics are not being taught. And that's essential. And so, you know, like someone came to Christ, two people came to Christ on Sunday night at our Meet the Pastor meeting. Now, as brand new Christians, they have some essential needs if they're going to grow up in the Lord. And I can't um, start addressing those needs from the pulpit on Sunday morning. The week before, four people came to Christ. We just baptized them last Sunday morning. I can't address those needs every single Sunday because all the time, if a church is healthy, Healthy sheep will reproduce, and there should be an ongoing, you know, income of new believers who are finding Christ. So you have to have some vehicle where people are getting grounded. If Dr. Billy Graham was correct, he said 90 to 95 percent of the people in the evangelical church have remained babes in Christ. They've never grown. They've never gotten grounded. And many times because their church doesn't really address discipleship as it relates to new Christians. So Jesus said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, that is, do evangelism, make converts. He doesn't say do discipleship. He says make disciples. It's there used synonymously with conversion. And a church that's not engaged in active evangelism is a church that's going to be self-centered. It's a church that's going to be dead. And you're to baptize these new believers, and obviously your grandsons have taken that step, and I'm assuming they are born again the sad thing is, is that people are baptized all the time in these churches. When Perry Noble, you know, was doing these baptisms, you know, in his movement in South Carolina, uh, they're baptizing sometimes on a single Sunday where they'd have baptism Sunday, a thousand people. Well, I've met four of them that came from New Spring that visited Community Bible Church, had been baptized there, and not a single one of them even knew what the plan of salvation was. And unfortunately, this happens sometimes in churches that have the gospel. Someone comes down front or they go to the pastor and say, I'd like to get baptized. And we don't really find out if they even believe. I was on the phone before staff meeting this morning with a gentleman who said, you know, Pastor Carl, um, I gave all the right words, knew the right words, and we can only go by what people say. But I've been coming since, you know, December of 2020, and I realized I was not a believer, so I want to put my baptism on the right side of my conversion. And it's important that as best you can humanly tell, like that's what Philip did to go back to Anthony's question. He examined the eunuch. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip conditionally conditionally says, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the eunuch responds, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's his public confession. So he's basically probing. Well, when did he become a Christian? Well, while Philip preached Jesus to him. Philip didn't even lead him in a prayer. He just preached Jesus from Isaiah 53, which is like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross. And in his heart, he believed. With the heart, man believes under righteousness. And so he's kind of asking him a diagnostic question here, kind of like Paul asked a diagnostic question in in Acts 19 before he baptizes some disciples, some learners, but not disciples of Jesus yet. They were disciples of John, 
uh, he asks a diagnostic question before he baptizes them. And so it's important that a baptismal candidate be examined. And yes, it's possible to baptize an unbeliever. You see that in the first half of Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch, it divides into two halves. So they baptize Simon the sorcerer, believing his confession was real, only to find out later it wasn't. So it's possible to baptize an unbeliever, but you shouldn't baptize someone who doesn't know what the plan of salvation is. And so if, uh, if like I asked a lady recently, she came to the church, and I'll say, I asked her, well, how certain was she if she were to die that she'd go to heaven? She said, I'm 500%. Well, she was going to a church within a mile of where I'm sitting this morning. And uh, sadly, they baptized her at that church. When I asked her why God should let her into heaven, she just gave all these good works. And she gave these testimonies. She said, well, I thought about leaving that church. And then I was there one Sunday morning, and somebody just started speaking in tongues. And I just felt like I was healed. You know, and all this emotionalism and this nonsense, and she didn't even know what the plan of salvation was. So, Again, only God can ultimately read the heart, but the mouth speaks what's in the heart. So if someone says, well, I'm 500% sure because I'm a good person, then you know they're lost and they have a false assurance of salvation. So I appreciate this grandmother. You want to live out what you want your grandchildren to be. So Diane from Marietta, Georgia, if you haven't been through a basic discipleship course, you might consider going online to searchthescriptures.org, and 18 of the 45 weeks are up there right now, and you could begin to work through that because these are the nuts and bolts issues. And really, I tell parents you need to know these truths inside and out because sometimes there's formal teaching and opportunity that God gives you. But like when my grandchildren come, most of the teaching, we may have a Bible study at night before they go to bed, but most of the teaching is just hanging with them during the day and God opens a door to talk about spiritual things, and I'm able to reaffirm what their parents are already teaching them, or a question comes to their mind for the first time, and I'm privileged to maybe answer it. And so the nuts and bolts of what you want your grandchildren to know by the time they're 18, 19 years old and they're leaving to go off to college is what's taught in that basic discipleship course. So that's where I would start. And... um uh, it's not like there's some magical book that, oh, you know, let my children work through this. What they need to do is get into the book, uh, the Bible, and that's what's going to change their lives. And, you know, there was an organization that printed out editions of the NIV, and, of course, for years and years, the number one translation of the Bible was the King James, just because historically it had a rich tradition here in the United States. Not initially, the pilgrims and others used the Bishop's Bible initially, but it became so outdated and that the English language was changing so fast, they then later switched to the King James. And for years before Bible translation began to expand, that was the principal translation. Well, the NIV came out, and it became the most popular translation in America. Why? Because of a marketing plan this guy had. So he had like the Athletics Study Bible, the Businessman's Study Bible, uh, the Single Woman's Study Bible, and he packaged it under all these different plans. But that's not the answer. The answer is to teach basic truth that every new Christian needs to understand, and that's what we cover in the Basic Discipleship Course. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Kelly writes, Kelly S. writes, 
my child asked me, who do you pray to, God or Jesus? I told him, I pray to God and end it in Jesus' name. God is the Father. He is ultimate. He is the creator over all. But I always pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. No one comes to the Father but by me, namely Jesus. I do hear many who pray, Dear Jesus, there are times I call on Jesus directly. I know when calling on salvation, we have to ask Jesus to please save us. I hear many saying, Jesus bless you. What do you think? What is the correct way to direct our prayers? Also, I heard you comment lately on Tim Keller. You said he was saying there was contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2, and also I thought there was something about him accepting homosexuality. I've heard many I know reference him uh, with things. They like him and endorse him. Can you please again explain the things he has said so I'll know where he is wrong? Thank you for protecting the flock. Well, it's a good question. So Jesus made this statement in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So technically, generally, the form of prayer as given in what we call the model prayer, sometimes people call the Lord's Prayer. Some people want to make a big shmeal out of, well, the Lord's Prayer, John 17, the high priestly prayer, and this is a model. It, it just semantics. But he did give us a pattern. When you pray, say, Our Father. And you should call God Father. And I'm not saying you can't say Lord, Lord. Um, but generally speaking, say Father. Because uh, it's a tender term. It, in the Greek New Testament, it's Abba. And it's the same in Hebrew. And so, like, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll hear children all the time say, Abba, Abba. And they're calling their dad. And it's a tender term. It means daddy. And so the Lord told us to call him Father. And that's very honoring to the Lord. And so sometimes when I hear people pray all the time, just use Lord and Lord this and Lord that. And you should say Father because he's your heavenly Father if you've received him as your Savior and he's dictated that you've become because you weren't before a child of God. Is a general principle, too, you pray in Jesus' name because it's in Jesus' name that we are confessing that we have, on the merits of his death, a righteousness that we could not achieve, but he gifted to us through faith. And, of course, uh, when we come in his name, we're coming in his authority, the one who has all authority in heaven on an earth. So you can pray directly to the Lord Jesus. He taught us that in John 14 and in John 16. But when we talk about praying to Jesus, we're, we're coming to the Father through the Son. And so in Jesus' name is not something we just tack on at the end of a prayer, like it's a magic formula. We are really acknowledging that we have no righteousness on our own, but we're coming on the merits of the cross. And sometimes, you know, people will say, well, you know, I don't feel worthy to pray, Pastor. Well, would you have felt worthy if you had had a consistent quiet time all week and you're walking in the Spirit and witnessing, yeah, I'd, I'd feel better about praying. And then you're really not praying in Jesus' name. You're, you're praying in your own name. And so we, we pray in Jesus' name. We pray to the Father through the Son. And you can call him directly. He said, he said you can ask me anything. Lord Jesus, um, this is a need I have. And you pray in the Spirit. And really, it's well been said that the prayer that gets to heaven starts in heaven. God the Father impresses God the Spirit, and he puts that on your heart, and you pray it back through the cross. So there's not a, 
a formula, so to speak, but there is a general pattern that Jesus gave us. And it's not wrong to pray directly to the Holy Spirit to ask him for his help because he's as much God as the Father or the Son, and you can't uh, separate the members of the Trinity. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God who's manifested himself in three co-equal, co-eternal people, and that cannot be changed. Um, You might want to. um, We offered it, I think I spent four or five Wednesday nights on this 31-page handout on prayer. And I think that would be really helpful. It will get you deep into the uh, issues that we're we're talking about here uh, in reference to um, how to pray and and so forth. Tim Keller, he's kind of an interesting guy. Um, He wrote a book, Reason to Believe, which became a bestseller in evangelicals. We had some people in our church who wanted to use it and I hadn't read it when it had just come out, so I bought a copy, and uh, I read it, and I said, no, we, we can't use this guy. Well, why not? He's a great Christian apologist. Well, how can you call anyone a great Christian apologist who endorses theistic evolution? There's evolution, and there's theistic evolution. Theistic evolution, evolution is the belief that, you know, the world came into existence 14 billion, 20 billion years ago, whatever number the person is using through, you know, this Big Bang uh, theory and life formed and eventually evolved and, you know, out of the glue into the zoo, that became you kind of mentality. Theistic evolution says, well, God used the process of evolution. God was the cause of the Big Bang and he made it happen and he allowed evolution to form. Huge problems with that. And for Keller to teach that, that's just, that's heresy. And listen, when you deny the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2, if you change how God made the world, then you can open the door for all kinds of moral error to follow. And so, you know, you not only have like Tim Keller, you got other guys like Bruce Walkie and Os Guinness and Peter Eines and others who are now, you know, saying it's okay to believe in theistic evolution. There's huge problems with it. Number one, you've got death and disease before the fall. Paul is very clear in Romans 5 and verse 12 that, that death entered into the world through sin. There was no death. There was no death. So there were not these huge, massive dinosaurs who walked on the earth for millions of years ever before God created man. No, there were huge dinosaurs. The book of Job describes them vividly. That was a question that came up a few weeks ago. But uh, they were created on the same day that God created man. The only difference is, is that they're now pretty much extinct, though they did pull up a water dinosaur, the Japanese, in the 1970s. They, they made a stamp out of it. They called it the dinosaur stamp. It was an animal that was so huge they had to pull it out of the water with a crane. Uh, With that said, uh, theistic evolution puts death and disease before the fall, where God teaches it's a result of the fall. And look, there was one man, Adam, through whom sin entered the world, and Paul's whole analogy in Romans 5, equally through one man, Christ, he provided a way of escape for all people. So you, you lose a lot of basic theology. So it doesn't really surprise me where Tim Keller now has aberrations in his view of uh, heterosexual versus homosexual Christians. 
So he's in support of what we call the gay celibate Christian movement. What is that? Well, there's a guy named Sam Alberry. He was an Anglican pastor. Sits on a lot of evangelical platforms now. In fact, uh, Tim Keller wrote a devotional book with Sam Alberry in 2017. How could he do that if he were sound in biblical theology? He couldn't. Why? Because Alberry argues that you can be a homosexual Christian as long as you're celebrate. As long as you don't go, and I'm very careful here because a lot of parents have their home-educated children that are listening. As long as you don't go all the way, then there's, you can kiss, there's other kinds of affection that two men and two women can have towards one another. This is just wicked. This is evil. And to allow Sam Alberry on evangelical platforms is terrible. It's just like ignorance of what God says. Look, if someone is saved out of a homosexual background, unlike the Revoice movement, the Revoice movement has entered into the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. The PCA traditionally, historically, and for the most part, are the conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterians. But they're in a crisis of sorts. They should have officially renounced. They didn't need to, at their gathering, say, well, we're going to do a study on the Revoice movement. There's nothing to study. God's Word is clear. And so when you got someone like Tim Keller putting his stamp of approval on this kind of nonsense, this is evil. Look, if someone is saved out of a homosexual background and they have feelings towards someone of the same sex, those feelings need to be brought under the sanctifying power of God the Holy Spirit and repented of. Just like if someone is a profligate and they've lived immorally as a homosexual and then they're converted, it doesn't mean that they can't be tempted again with uh, lust in their heart. Uh, They could easily be tempted. But they are to repent of those feelings. They are to bring them under the sovereign power of God, the Holy Spirit. So Tim Keller is uh, a nothing to me. I didn't appreciate him when his book came out 20 years ago, uh, The Reason to Believe, um, or Reason for God, whatever it was called, uh, because of theistic evolution. And I don't appreciate him now. I wouldn't endorse him. I would never let him in my pulpit. Uh, to me, he is normalizing aberrant, aberrant behavior and aberrant behavior, and he's doing what's evil, and um, it, it, he's bad. He's a, he's a bad number. He's a bad number. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. By the way, let me just say, what often happens with this kind of thing is many of these people end up renouncing the faith. They end up renouncing the faith. And we've seen that in the last two years. Leaders in high-platform Christian evangelical movement and pastors who have totally walked away from the faith and say they are no longer Christians, and many times they are living in a wicked, immoral lifestyle. I would not be at all surprised if uh, Tim Keller ends up that way. I I understand he has pancreatic cancer. I don't know how he's doing. Um, But what what he is doing here is wrong. And that doesn't mean that everything he ever said was right. Look, Ravi Zacharias, right? Um, Did everything he say was wrong as a Christian apologist? No. But only to find out that he had been sleeping with women for a few decades. 
you know, and that has all come out. And how sad is that? And only God knows where he is today. But but this was a, a direction that he was in. And this is not good. We can't bend on these issues. Go ahead. All right. We have an anonymous uh, listener from South Carolina who writes, I have a sister-in-law who claims to believe in Jesus, but has very strange views about spirituality. For instance, she believes that Christ taught his followers how to heal others, read energy, and speak to spirits based on what she's read in the Apocrypha. I've not personally uh, fact-checked this, as I believe the Word of God is complete as it is, but she thinks man left out the Apocrypha from the Bible, therefore it is inspired by God. I know this isn't true, but I'm having a hard time explaining to her that God's Word is complete as is, and that if he wanted the books of the Apocrypha included, they would have been included. She thinks that the Bible has been severely tampered with and uses examples like the Book of Mormon and other translations of the Bible as examples of how easy it is for man to add and take away from Scripture. How can I explain to her that God is sovereign and that he would not allow the Word to be incomplete? Well, I might start by encouraging you to go to Amazon, and I make zero money off of this. So I priced it so that I wouldn't make any money. The only people who make money on it is Amazon because I don't want to peddle God's word. With that said, I I wrote a little booklet. It's about 25 pages long, How to Prove the Bible is True. And if you go to Amazon, I walk through five proofs for the unique authority and for the canonical books that we have. Now, if you want to go into some real depth, then I would encourage you to take my course on bibliology. We have available through Search the Scriptures, the Institute of Biblical Studies. It doesn't cost anything except the handouts if you want hard copies or if you want hard copies of the DVDs. But you can um, get made available when you sign up for the Institute, the handouts that you need, and uh, you can listen online to all the coursework. Now, the Bibliology course has 500 pages of notes, and there's a section in it. It's called Section 5, and it deals with how do we get our Bible? Why do we believe there's just 66 books, and why don't we believe the Apocrypha to be inspired? So we go through some basic principles on how people recognize the inspiration. Man didn't determine what was inspired. Man just recognized what God had inspired because there were certain uh, characteristics that if a person was writing on God's behalf, that would be evident. Uh, A book that was canonical was often confirmed by an act of God. Uh, There were true prophets, obviously. There were false prophets, and sometimes God would confirm a prophet through a supernatural miracle. Now, a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament never did the first miracle, but Elijah and Elisha did. Moses did. Moses gave us the first five books, uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Pentateuchos, five law, uh, five books of the law, so to speak. Um, And so God would confirm. He would confirm, too, as Moses underscored, through the fulfillment of a prophecy. If I said to you, I'm a prophet of God, let me tell you what's going to happen a thousand years from now. You'd say, well, I'm not going to be around in a thousand years. How do I know whether it's true? So you had to tell a short-range prophecy to confirm that you were indeed a prophet that could be trusted for things that were still way out in the future. And you see this characterized. The the canonical books of the Bible are life-changing. They have certain marks for inspiration. 
Jesus himself, and this is an argument from the fact that he's Lord. Now, if you don't believe he's God, then he speaks with no authority. But if you believe he's God and you believe that the apostles represented him and the apostles who dictated certain people to help in the uh, writing of the New Testament books, then indeed you um, can understand uh, what is true and what's not. And so the New Testament doesn't view the apocryphal books as inspired. So there's a group of writings between the um, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And there's a 400-year period where there was basically no prophet in Israel. And there were books that were written during that time. Um, The Roman Catholics refer to them as deuterocanonical, that is a second canon. And the Orthodox Church does as well. And so they have more books in their Bible. Now, these books are helpful in that they uh, shed light on history that had taken place during that 400-year period, but they were never viewed by the Jewish people as inspired. To this day, they've never been viewed as inspired because they didn't have the marks of canonicity, which, again, I go through in the course in great detail, but if you just want a short read, get the booklet on Amazon, How to Prove the Bible is True. But, for instance, take 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees is a book that you will find in the Roman Catholic Bible, It talks about praying for the dead and making atonement for the dead so that they can be delivered from their sin. It's in 2 Maccabees 12. Go home, you can just Google it, or if you're listening, Google 2 Maccabees chapter 12 and read that chapter, and you say, wow, there's all kinds of things here that don't agree with the New Testament, they don't agree with the Old Testament. Why? Because uh, it was a book that was not inspired by God. It was not from the hand of God Almighty. And so it is with each of these various books that you will find in their canon. Now, I will say in the first edition of the King James Bible, they put the apocryphal books between the Old and the New Testament. And in the preface that you read, and they came out with the, um, you know, memorial edition, the 400th uh, anniversary of the King James Bible in 2011, and they reprinted the... uh, introduction to that. And in it, they noted that we've included these apocryphal books, not because we believe they're inspired, but because they're useful in shedding light on what happened in that 400-year period. They were quickly accused by Roman Catholics as viewing them as inspired, so in the next edition, they removed them. So there's a reason why we have 66 books and 66 only. It's not a short answer, but if you want to really study this, and I think every Christian should, why do we believe what we believe? Uh, Take the course on Bibliology, even if you want to just work through Section 5, how we got the canon of Scripture, you'll learn a tremendous amount. We're out of time. Thanks for all who called and emailed, and and, uh, we're grateful for your questions. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 